Hello, I'm Joe Flynn. Today we will be having what I am sure will be a fascinating discussion about lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender experiences in education and what we should be considering as social justice educators. I'm joined today by Dr. Katie Jekyll. She's an associate professor of higher education at Northern Illinois University. Dr. Jekyll's research centers on teaching and learning in higher education and how LGBTQ students navigate the higher education landscape, especially within the college classroom. Hi, Dr. Jekyll. I'm happy to have you with us today. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's just go ahead and dive right in. Uh, can we start by uh, telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you mentioned, I am a newly associate professor starting this August at Northern Illinois University. I've been here since the fall of 2015. Much of my research looks at the experiences of queer and trans students within higher education um, and looking at issues of equity gaps um, as it pertains to everything from their, their experiences on the larger campus as well as within the classroom in particular. I was born and raised in Iowa, so not too far from here, and my PhD is from Iowa State University. Before coming here, I was in administration helping run a first and second year writing program for undergraduate students. So I, I also really enjoy the study of, of writing. I identify uh, predominantly uh, as a queer individual. I am also trans, which is where a lot of my research um, sort of focuses in on. So um, I think that is an important component um, both in terms of, of how I understand uh, sort of our, our discussion today as I think about sort of my own identity, um, as well as uh, my research and how my own identity serves to shape my understandings. Thank you. Thank you. That's really interesting. Uh, in terms of your research, what research or projects are you currently working on that advance thought and understanding of the LGBT experience? Yeah, that's a good question. So right now, I'm, I'm really interested in the methodology of critical discourse analysis. And I'm really interested in looking at university policy around how they make sense of policies that they do or don't put into place to um, honor trans students. Sometimes we call them proper names and pronouns. Sometimes we call them chosen name and pronouns, but the names and pronouns with which they identify. So I'm really interested in looking at how universities talk about whether or not they will honor our students' names and pronouns, how that looks, and then what are potentially discursive devices that they use to make sense of why they do or don't honor those policies. I'm also really interested in looking at reasons why colleges and universities refuse to collect demographic information on our queer and trans students. Much of the equity gaps that we have are because colleges and universities refuse to track who identifies as what. Um, and so there are gaps and invisibilities. And so I'm interested in why and how colleges um, talk about the reasons that they don't want to do it. Fascinating. Um, could, before going on, uh, can you briefly explain to our listeners what critical discourse analysis is? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so critical discourse analysis is a, it's typically a qualitative methodology that really looks at the linguistic features uh, used. 
so a, a couple of things are happening with language. And, and in order to really believe this, you, you have to sort of realize that epistemologically, language is inherently powerful. Discourse has power. So the example I use when I talk to my students about this is the use of passive voice. And I know that we all have probably traumatic experiences of our English teachers talking to us about not using passive voice. Um, but passive voice serves to obscure agency. So when we say things like, um, and there's some really famous work by Penelope and, and a few others around things like sexual assault, when we say that five women were raped, we obscure the actor in that. And so we focus then on that these women somehow got themselves into the situation. We also see this a lot in history textbooks around issues of slavery. Um, Africans were brought to the colonies. Maybe intellectually, we can all understand that there was movement. People were arrived within the U.S. But what was obscured in that is that they were enslaved, they were forced, and they were brought by enslavers, colonists. So critical discourse analysis is a methodology that helps us better understand what happens to meaning, what is obscured and what is privileged, if we really look at how people are using language. A lot of people struggle because they think that sentence construction just is, right? We don't think about it, but critical discourse analysis holds that um, we issue statements in particular ways to soften, to temper, to obscure, to privilege. And that's very much what I believe. So in other words, to uh, understand and experience, you're looking at how people talk about a particular Correct. phenomenon and by looking uh, really deeply at how folks out there can talk about, in this case, the LGBT experience, we can also make a, a lot of statements around issues of power, issues of privilege, et cetera, right? Exactly. Even in that acronym alone, um, what we choose to include, what we don't choose to include, and people having a hard time with um, you know, a lot of times I hear things like, well, gosh, that you just keep adding letters to this acronym, right? Even the ways in which we talk and think about that illustrates some really important power and privilege that's mediating how we think and understand. Right. As though you're like uh, stepping on someone else's toes because right. you're trying to be more descriptive about a range of experiences as opposed to trying to put them into discrete little boxes. Correct. Now, that kind of makes me, um, you know, it, it connects me to this notion of uh, intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to assume that intersectionality is important to your research and to understanding the challenges before both the LGBT population and the larger community. How do you define intersectionality and how does that concept shape discussions around LGBT issues? Yeah, so intersectionality is the crux of all of the work I do, whether it's my research, whether it's my teaching. The ways in which I understand it are similar to how Kimberly Crenshaw outlines it in, I think, 1993. And it's this idea that no one person has a single identity. We experience things based on our social identities, sometimes our political identities, but we are never one thing. So oftentimes we construct people as either men or women. Um, but what we know is that not all men are treated the same. Certainly men of color experience different uh, lived realities than white men. Women of color are treated differently. 
Um, and so you can't really talk about the LGBTQ population as only being about gender and sexuality because these are our multiple identities, right? We are still raced, we are still gendered, um, we are still sexualized. And so in those ways, um, we can't just talk about the LGBTQ population. And I see that happening a lot. I see that when we talk about queer and trans folks, we oftentimes don't talk about queer and trans folks of color. Or when we're talking about folks of color, there are silences around queer and trans issues. And that's not sort of how any of this can work. The two movements are more alike and are integrated more than most people realize. You cannot talk about some of the legislation that has recently happened for the LGBTQ population without talking about civil rights and about um, some of the legislation that happened during Reconstruction. We used some of those legal arguments to get equity policies and laws in place. And so for me, we can't talk about the one identity. We have to talk about them in the whole because that's how our lives function. That's, that's how we experience the world. I think it's really, uh, that's a really interesting concept because what it's making me think of uh, in this moment is Caitlyn Jenner and, and Caitlyn's intersection of identity being uh, initially a white male transitioning to a um, female and then on top of that also being very wealthy. Yeah, and, so... Uh, I, that's a really good point. And because I'm a language nerd, I would actually probably fracture that a little bit and remind folks that, that Caitlyn Jenner was a white man. So remember, there's a biological construct of biological sex, and then there is gender. Um, unless we are running around with a chromosome machine in the back of our car, we actually don't know people's biological sexes. We are assuming all of them. Um, so Jenner identified as a man, whether or not he's biologically male, I don't know. Um, I doubt if he ever knew. Those are not things that, so remember, gender and, and, and biological sex aren't the same, but you're right. So the, the case of Caitlyn Jenner was difficult because what happened is that everybody sort of assumed that this was the trans experience. We have somebody who's incredibly wealthy, whose political affiliations were, many would argue, against the trans community. And so what happens is if we don't realize that there's a multiplicity of how people experience transness or gender, then we all sort of hang our, our hats on this notion that all trans people are Caitlyn Jenner, and I promise you we're not. And so there is that whiteness, that wealth that Jenner has, and that is not the whole of the trans experience. Yes, yeah, it seemed like when uh, Caitlyn emerged, it was as though there was a, a certain amount of privilege there yes. that allowed a shaping of that discourse uh, in the popular consciousness. Absolutely. And not only sort of just the existence and the acceptance from many, but even just the privilege to be able to afford some of that gender-affirming surgery that is just simply out of the reach for so, so many trans folks, that she was able to afford um, with little problem so much that affirmed her identity is wonderful and that is not the experience of many. It's interesting that you point out uh, the privilege embedded in these discussions and the expectations LGBT folks uh, of teaching others about these issues. 
for many folks, the language is new, in, including us educators. I mean, I'm learning myself. Uh, I have a feeling that you are asked about terminology quite a bit in classes and workshops, et cetera. Can you unpack that for us? Absolutely. And, and yes. So the number one thing that I am asked whenever I, I sort of give any conference presentation, whenever I teach in everything that I've written, quite frankly, in every meeting I've ever been in, is people want me to sit down and operationalize and define for them everything about this acronym, which, um, you know, in my classes and for my students and when it's learning, um, I'm happy to do. There is some tension for me and, I, and I'll get to that. But sort of basically, as we think about the LGBTQ acronym, it stands for the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, um, I add the Q for queer uh, umbrella. As, and I want to be really thoughtful here. How I am defining these terms are very much within my own realm of understanding. These are terms that can change across culture, across class, across race. And so um, I want you to be really thoughtful about not necessarily taking um, my definitions as truth, but to really look into this. Typically, we understand lesbians as women-loving women. This is uh, cisgender women, typically. Cisgender means that an individual's biological sex and gender align. Um, gay is typically men identify men who love each other. Bisexual folks, is, it's typically understood that they are attracted to some men and some women. Note, it's not all men and women which is oftentimes uh, a mistake and, and thought of. Trans is a little bit different. Whereas the LGB components talk primarily about sexuality, trans is not a sexuality. It is a gender. It is a gender identity. We have historically within the literature conflated these, uh, these populations, these sort of outliers, as it were, um, together. But it's important to note that trans people aren't necessarily gay, lesbian, um, or bisexual, or they might be. Um, it is a mistake to put them together. However, the literature very much understands sort of these, what we call gender and sexuality minorities, their experiences to be somewhat similar. You heard me earlier use the, the term queer. Mm -hmm. And that is how I identify. Queer sort of uh, is a term that was, it used to be a pejorative when many of us were a lot younger. And it's a term that both the academy and the community has worked many parts of the community, not all, to take back. It is no longer a, a, a pejorative word unless it's used as, as such. It was um, primarily theorized by Judith Butler. And it's this idea that, you know, we talk so much about sexuality hinging on biological sex. But biological sex is not nearly as concrete as what we were once told. There are actually five markers that make up your biological sex. Most people go their entire lives without getting chromosomal tests and really doing those. And so what we're really looking at as is a, a very fluid entity of gender being placed upon what is understood to be a concrete notion of sex. So it's hard to assume that somebody is gay if we're not absolutely certain that about a biological sex. So queer sort of messes with that and pushes back on these gender binaries that don't need to exist. Gender is a social construct. 
And so it allows for more fluidity. It allows, it means that if you identify as queer, I don't have to be constructed as a female, which I don't identify as. It means that I can have some wiggle room in where my gender shows up. And so it, it provides more fluidity. I, I sort of sometimes struggle with this question because I'm asked so much and I'm asked for definitive truths about, well, what exactly is this? And how do you exactly know? And people sometimes get a little frustrated when I talk in some abstraction, but also some like, well, it might be this, it might be that. Because these are terms that are Googleable. <laughs> Where else in this world do I not have to do my own sort of rendering and, and understanding and, and research? These are terms that are highly accessible. These are terms that are used day in and day out. And so for me, it's a little frustrating when people aren't willing to look into this in their own time. I'm expected to know particular things about all women, right? Women are supposed to do this. I'm supposed to know about all men. I never ask somebody to sit me down and tell me the ins and outs of what men do. And so sometimes it can feel a little insulting of like, well, what are these terms? What is this language you speak of when we have this information at our fingertips? We have access like we've never had before. And this is just so easily Googleable. So it's almost like, you know, the, the, the privilege rest for right. heterosexuals and the ability to be able to tell someone or request someone from the LGBT community to... Exactly define their experiences exactly in, it's in concrete ways and and not um have the fluidity so to right. speak, of of the experience represented right. which actually uh, oddly enough also includes heterosexuals exactly so that folks have never had to think about their own sexuality that folks have just right that privilege of never really thinking through how things are are already set out for them as gendered and sexed is exactly the privilege that I don't necessarily have. And I struggle when people want me to define my existence. Like, why don't you already know this is a thing? Um, it's a lot of labor. I worry about my students who consistently have to tell their teachers, no, I am this. No, you can't ask me that. You know, teachers will use examples of like, well, when you marry a man, and my students have to be like, ugh, like that's not real for me, stop it. Right? Hmm. What happens when your language assumes something onto the bodies and experiences of your students, of your learners? These assumptions that just right. easily and freely have circulated throughout society for and have been deemed, generations. Exactly. And have been deemed politically neutral, right? Nobody is going to get in trouble for saying, well, when you marry someone of the opposite sex, that is an inherently political statement that you have discursively put forth into this world and you have assumed everybody is straight. You've also assumed that there's only two sexes, which is, by the way, wrong. Mm -hmm. There's more. Um, and so these things can be really damaging. And so I do struggle when people are, oh, what's this acronym? What's your terminology today? Um, because, again, look into it. If you genuinely want to know, there are some excellent resources out there. And also just Google it. You know, and I think that kind of presents the, uh, the flip side of this um, and the importance and power of naming. Mm -hmm. um, why is naming important and how do you make sense of claims of frustration, of, excuse me, of frustration about the expanding umbrella of the LGBTQ experiences? Yeah, I think it's so critical to name, um, to have an identity and to have community 
and to recognize that there are people who have experiences that are quote unquote out of the norm. I think that um, it is key when we think about learning, which is inherently a social process, I think it's so important for people's social identities to participate in that and to be recognized. Because what we know is that you can't learn if you don't feel safe and you can't learn if you don't feel included. And so that naming component is so important. We know that student development, we know that cognitive development rests very much on these social identities. And so if we ignore them, if we treat everyone quote unquote the same, it's just not gonna work from a, a cognitive standpoint. I think the frustration is that we live in a world where language changes every day. I think with the advent of things like social media, of things like Twitter, we create words every day. And while there's some resistance, um, I think that we accept that, right? We accept when we create new words. And so it's hard when people want to police the discourse of, no, I didn't know that word when I was your age, you shouldn't know it. So it's this idea that language is always going to keep going. But when we start to police what is right and what is wrong, um, I think we start engaging in a privilege that's not ours, but it's a power-wielding technique. And I say this in part as somebody who used to be an English faculty member, as somebody whose job it was to say, mm, this is a colloquialism, you can't use it here, this is a comma slice, right? So sure, there are academic components of, of language. But if somebody identifies as something and you don't know that word, you don't get to say it isn't real. Um, mm -hmm. Your job is to Google it and try to come to know. That issue of heterosexual and cisgender privilege or cishet privilege is powerful. How do you as a scholar and individual deal with those kinds of challenges? You know, I've been thinking about this question for um, a couple weeks and I, I don't know that I have a really great answer. I think the ways in which I deal with it are largely based on my own privileges. I have white privilege. Um, I'm masculine presenting. I am gregarious and outgoing. So I think in those ways, I have some mechanisms that help make sense of it. That said, I do have to do a lot more explaining. In nearly every article I've ever written, if I write about trans and queer people, they require me to have a section in my articles called terminology, where I literally have to spell out for people what a trans person is, what a queer person is, despite the fact that, again, you could Google that. And they say, you know, the, the, the journal articles uh, editors say things like, well, this might not be general knowledge of our readership. Well, that's terrible. That's terrible that somebody in education doesn't have that as general knowledge and has never been prompted to come to know that as general knowledge. So there is a lot of over-explaining. Um, and there is, I will say, within me, um, a really important piece around grace. I assume goodwill. I assume people genuinely want to come to know. Um, and the things that people say and do that are hurtful, I do my best to address with as much kindness and as grace as I can. That's really uh, fascinating that you say that because I, I think about when I'm um, out there talking about racism and the African-American experience, I'm, I'm constantly uh, vigilantly aware that there will be some people in the room who will not hear a word that I have to say. <laughs> and yes. there are some people in the room that are willing to hear what I have to say, but 
don't necessarily know what or how to think about it, yes. but are still nonetheless open and may ask a question that might be for, you know, lack of better terms right now, a little off mm-hmm. <laughs> or somewhat even insulting without recognizing that they're being insulting. Yes. And, and we still have to, you know, engage that um, in, a, in a compassionate way because if we don't, then we run the risk of shutting down the uh, conversation entirely and not giving folks any room to, to move and grow for themselves. And I, I think for me, that's the biggest thing with social justice work is to recognize the absolute labor of delivering the content, right? That's one thing. But then to mediate and, and sort of learn and grow alongside folks who are resistant, who want to know but just don't and do ask those questions, or the folks who don't want to know and are certain to let you know that they don't want to know or that you're wrong. It's a very tiring thing, social justice work. It is exhausting. And so I think what's really important is to have a support network, if at all possible, and people around you who believe you when that you say, you know, this was really hard. I, I have to explain my existence over and over again. And somebody's telling me that I am wrong or that I am not real. Um, it's, it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, some out there believe that issues of, of gender and sexuality can be controversial, especially in the K-12 context. How do you respond to or give perspective on why educators should be engaging in these issues? That's a really good question. And you're absolutely right. For, for such a long time, it has been sort of deemed taboo to even talk about any LGBTQ topics in the classroom, especially with elementary kids. My typical thing is to ask people, how many times a day have they already assumed and engaged in heterosexual and or cisgender language with their child? Um, In most of my friends who have small kids, they tease their child, you know, oh, is that your boyfriend? Is that your girlfriend? That is the same. I would argue that's worse, right? Um, Because you've already gendered these kids. You've already assumed their heterosexuality. So when you talk about, you know, group up with somebody of the opposite gender or opposite sex or boys versus girls, or when you get married, we're already doing all of this in a heterosexual discourse. We already are. So it's confounding to me why people think that's okay um, and not sort of engaging in, in talking about LGBTQ topics. The other thing is that I would strongly encourage people to remember that talking about LGBTQ people is not the same as talking about sex. For some reason, I think the world sort of constructs queer and trans people as like these, just a sexuality. It is an identity. It is the ways in which people self-identify. It is the way there is a community, there is a culture, there's a queer culture. And so, you know, not talking about it isn't working. Um, you're already talking about folks in and using language that assumes heterosexuality and cisgender um, notions. So for me, it's it's very perplexing why one is scary and one is not. Interesting. You know that kind of forces me to ask this question: um, LGBTQ youth deal with a lot in schools and, and have dealt with a lot excessive and intense bullying, homelessness, suicide, 
often the stories of LGBT youth have been, you know, stories of horror, to be quite honest. Um, however, we have seen significant advances in the presence of LGBTQ youth in schools and, and society generally. So I'm wondering, what does the research and your own observations say about the realities of the LGBTQ experiences in schools today? And, and, a, yeah. and, as a, and as a second part of that question, what are the dynamics of the LGBTQ experience in schools? Sure. So you're right to mention that um, LGBTQ students experience bullying, harassment, and what we call a chilly climate far more than their cis uh, straight peers, or at least at the very least, it looks very, very different. You're right to talk about the homelessness rate, which is incredibly high, as well as suicidal ideation and the completion of suicide. I think what's really important to note here, though, that in the literature, it's what we call a deficit model. Painting all queer and trans people as mere victims takes away their agency and their power. We are not necessarily always talking about how queer and trans students provide, you know, richer learning spaces. We're not necessarily talking about sort of their accomplishments or the value that their gender and sexuality might actually lead and, and provide in these learning spaces um, in and outside of the classroom. So to paint queer and trans students as, you know, homeless kids or kids that are bullied, certainly that's sometimes true. It's also true that these are extraordinarily talented, wonderful, cool people who think about things in super cool ways, who add to our classroom spaces. And, you know, just like with, with any other student, there are affordances and constraints. I think um, to talk about sort of the landscape of how they experience it, I think it varies so, so much. I'm, I'm very leery to sort of provide an overview because the queer and trans population, we are not monoliths. Certainly my experiences as somebody who is not gender conforming differ than, um, you know, somebody who is cisgender appearing, um, but identifies as queer. Overarchingly, you've named the big things. I would add to that, that the curricular silences that these students are experiencing are just as damaging. That they don't know that queer and trans people participated in the Civil War, I think is egregious. We were there. We were absolutely there. There are historical documents that illustrate that um, biological females transitioned to fight for the union because they believed about abolishing slavery. It is tragic that people don't recognize the huge roles that the LGBTQ population has played in not just this nation's um, history, but globally. It's also important to note that many of the value systems by which we hold um, were imparted upon us from colonialism. Culturally, um, there are places that don't construct LGBTQ people as taboo, as wrong. They don't look at it in a religious way. There are Native American and um, Native populations that construct it as a gift. Uh, that There's sometimes this um, terminology we call two-spirit, right, that you can be sort of both. And so it's, it's highly contextual based on location, based on just sort of the people around us. You know, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because lately I've been um, rather perplexed and, and frustrated about um, President Donald Trump's 
July 3rd comments about education and this notion that critical educators, multicultural and social justice educators are trying to rewrite history. Mm-hmm. And the, the privilege in, in situating history in particular ways, yes. um, particularly, um, most importantly, in a way that has already erased a number of identities from that history. Uh, do you want to say anything about that? You know, I have opportunities to teach undergrads and it is sometimes the very first time that they hear that we have always been here. Maybe the language was different, but, you know, same gender loving individuals have always existed. Um, Trans folks have always existed. We have been systematically erased from huge movements, huge things in history and each time I talk to them about this, it's not uncommon that they tear up. I don't think people are recognizing the absolute power and the absolute necessity for people to recognize that their communities have always been, that they are a part of something larger. I have a great deal of fear anytime anybody wants to erase out of history books, out of curriculum, out of our schools. He components of people because sometimes we need that right sometimes we need to know that we come from a long line of folks who have been fighting to be seen we are not alone and the queer and trans population oftentimes doesn't have that and it's lonely it's scary and um, they should have pride in who they are and to know that they are not the only ones in light of the concerns that you raise, how are you and others addressing the, the practical concerns about teaching and engaging LBT, L, excuse me, I'm sorry, LGBTQ issues, both in schools and at home? Yeah. So um, I'm a big fan of, of doing a full integration. Um, and I think it's Christine Sleater who talks about this. We, we have to avoid uh, the add-on model. So what I'm not purporting here is that you have a regular science unit and then at the end of that unit, you talk about how that one lady was a lesbian. Like that's not helpful. We need full integration here. We need that these topics to be meaningful and they can't just be sort of these add-ons. And so I think for me, a big part of this is adding in literature. I think a big part of this is adding in discourse and discussion. Um, You know, this add-on feature, I think, in some ways may do more harm than good. As excited as I am that they passed legislation that we include LGBTQ history in our schools, my fear is that people aren't going to do it in a substantive way. We need to talk about who was there. We need to talk about the contributions they've made. And we need to actually talk about these issues beyond kind of that heroes and holidays approach. What's hard about that is that's a lot harder. It takes a lot more research. It takes a lot more time. But for me, even bringing it up and talking about it in in depth is better than sort of pointing to somebody and saying, you know, that person was gay. We have to talk about what does that mean? Why are we now just finding out about it? What are the implications of this? Why has it been something that we haven't talked about ever? Why is this taboo? What do you think educators and the general public need to be most aware of when considering and engaging LGBTQ issues with students and youth? I think the most important thing is probably to do your very best to normalize it. 
listen, you've got queer and trans kid in your classrooms right now. I promise. I don't care who you're teaching. I don't, you just do right. You, you might not know it. They might not know it, but the most important thing. And as I think back of my own educational experience, the, the teachers who recognized that it was real, it existed, but that they didn't make a big deal about it. That was some of the most powerful things for me. I went to an incredibly small school. It was certainly not okay to be uh, queer or trans, but there were a handful of people in my life who would periodically just sort of acknowledge that that is an, a valid identity, that there was nothing wrong with it. And I think even just starting there is important. That also pains me to say that. It pains me that my advice is to do your best to normalize it and not, you know, freak out on somebody because we should be doing so much more. But I also recognize that there are politics at play. You know, this is still, this still continues to be something that people have deemed wrong. There are people who still believe that this shouldn't be a part of our, our schooling system, that we should be keeping this out. And my belief is that you can't keep out a topic where your students share that identity. You just can't. Representation is key. Yes. Without going too far afield, um, and, and, and resisting the urge to, you know, not identify these, I, I feel compelled to ask for teachers, especially, but also um, parents and families out there who need a place to start. What are a couple of, you know, good sources um, or websites that someone could go to if they were, you know, just mm -hmm. beginning that this process of learning to understand the, the LGBTQ experience and how to engage these experiences um, in productive and meaningful ways in classrooms? So for me, no, that's a good question. For me, I think a really good place to start is the GLSEN, the GLSEN website, glsen.org. Yeah. Um, they have a lot of resources. They have a lot of ideas, actually, specifically for teachers about inclusive curriculum guides. They also can take you through um, sort of some of the questions you have about, you know, how do you ask for folks' names with which they identify? How do you ask for pronouns? So for me, I think that GLSEN website is a really, really good start. In terms of parents, I think that that can be a, a really great place to start as well, actually. I think that they give some really practical, good tips. There are rather a number of places that you can find out more from, and they're a little bit more specific. So for instance, the Trevor, the Trevor Project is a really good resource. That's for uh, folks who maybe need to receive um, a little bit more in terms of some mental health ideas. GLAD is a good resource. So there's, there's a number of things that I think will, will really help. I think also for schools to look into some literature around, if you don't already have one, creating a gay-straight alliance so that students can come together um, and engage in maybe some of their own activism can be really powerful. There's a lot of information out there about that as well. Wonderful. Thank you for all those comments. Um, do you have any parting comments that you'd like to share? You know, we are all educators. I recognize that um, I teach in, in a university setting, but, but we are all in this together. I think don't be afraid to reach out to folks and ask, how do I do this, right? So ostensibly, we all want our students to learn. We all want them to grow. And we are all in this together. So I still sometimes have questions. I still sometimes reach out. So if folks want to reach out to me or 
create some materials to share. I, remember, we're in this together. We can do this. Um, and these students are worth it. Well, thank you, Katie. I really appreciate you joining us. It has been a truly fascinating conversation. And I will be the first to say that I've learned a lot over um, my time with you. Um, so thank you for being a part of the Social Justice Summer Camp podcast. We really greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Right on. Uh, take care. You too.